0: Coming in from the cold, looks back across three centuries of the beautiful game
2: in England and contains references to social attitudes and language from the past that some listeners may find challenging.
3: Once again, cutting back inside. But here's Raheem Sterling on the hat-trick, slots it in beautifully. Goal number five.
4: Little will take it quickly in by Venison, Aldridge? going up. Barnes is in there, and Barnes is equalised
1: is the rare headed goal for John Barnes. And here's Regis, they're caught square, this is a chance. Oh, he did it superbly. Almost
5: went for flowers, he didn't call loudly enough. Henry decided he had to take
6: it. 2-0. Three defenders and a goalkeeper ahead of him. Oh, what a
7: finish from Andy Cole! Taylor doggedly is trying to stay with Billy Bonds, Bonds a little cross, and Clyde first for goal.
2: This is the story of black male footballers in the English game. This is our sporting history. This is yours. I'm Jessica Crichton, and this is Coming In From The Cold, a story you can follow on TalkSport and all your favourite podcast platforms.
8: Towards Memphis, bouncing around, Matter to cut it back
3: again, and Rashford has got the dream goal that he was looking for in his debut and one he will stars.
2: Last time on Coming In From The Cold, we learned about John Charles. No, not the Wales legend, but the first black man to pull on the white shirt of England. We heard about the highs and tragic lows of lead South African star Albert Johannesson. And we talked to England's first black star of the colour TV age, Clyde Best. On this episode we'll tell you all about the men who proved that black players could hold their own anywhere on the pitch, anywhere in the land and beyond. This is coming in from the cold. Oh, uh,
1: this is great stuff. Is it to take it in turns to go an exhibition.
5: have number 7. Pelé. Up comes Carlo Alberto
2: on the right. And it's the Brazil team that won the World Cup in 1970 brought with them a new breed of the beautiful game. That tournament in Mexico was the first World Cup shown on colour TV. And the Brazilians, decked out in those famous yellow shirts, were a multiracial team led by outstanding black players like Pele, Jorginho, the captain Carlos Alberto. For a generation of black kids growing up in England, international stars like these provided visual proof that black was beautiful and brilliant. Arsenal and Everton's Kevin Campbell breaks it down.
9: You look at the Brazil team and they're the best in the world and you see black men playing football better than anybody else. You take a little bit of pride because... Brazil was always the second team, you know, or Portugal, with the way Eusebio used to play, or Peru, or black communities out, out in South America. But that's the only vision we actually had was at a World Cup of seeing these guys. And they could do things with a ball that nobody else really could do. The way they shot, the way they took free kicks, that samba style kind of play. They played with a smile on their face. It was a superb back then watching a the World Cup and seeing these teams with black players doing so fantastic. Here's John Barnes. But well, in the 1970s, obviously Pele.
5: You know, we have a Brazilian team of Pele Rivellino, Gerson, Jarazinho, They had some great players, but Pele obviously was the, was the star.
2: Former Sheffield United and Leeds star Brian Dean. The Brazilian team of the 70s, they were like spacemen who'd come to earth to play football. And here's the first black man to score for England, Luther Blissett. To see someone that you see them, you think they represent
4: me because they say "color you all." It it gives you such an encouragement that you think to yourself, "I can, I can do this. I can be where they are. I can do that." And seeing the likes of Pele and Jardinho and all of that Brazilian team was, was growing up, doing what they did was quite amazing, incredible, brilliant. It, it really was that sort of a moment for myself and other boys. Because, and the thing is, it wasn't only Brazil because. I remember because of the World Cup, and then days used to get Bolivia and all these teams would have teams in the in the World Cup. And when you were playing, as you were doing the playground, whatever you would be, I'm going to be Bolivia today, or I'm going to be this today, or, I'm going to be Jura today, or, I'm going to be whatever. And it wasn't always the big, great country, it was just the fact that these countries represented almost you know, they had represented that looked like you. And I think that was very, very important for myself and other boys as we well were growing up. I think, yes, this is something we can do.
2: People all over the world were inspired by the samba style of the Brazilians. But it seemed to mean more for young black Britons who were trying to find their place in a society that seemed to question their worth at every turn. Here's Professor Paul Gilroy, author of Ain't No Black in The Union Jack.
3: I think the 1970 World Cup was a really important moment in the context of of the politics of of race and football. I mean, for me, as a 14-year-old at that point... I was strongly invested in, in a Brazilian victory. Uh, and, and I was doing that, I think, because I felt that running from skinheads and being told that I didn't fit here or belong here opened me up to the possibility of identifying with other forms of sporting excellence. It's a certain quality of winning. It's a quality of winning beautifully, of winning with skill, of winning with style, And of of showing that style to the world on a world stage in a way that somehow fits with the idea that black people were cooler and more competent than we were normally thought to be able to be. And so the Brazilian team of 1970 is absolutely part of that story, as is, of course, the figure of Eusebio in the Portuguese team, who, you know, was one of my heroes at that time. A similarly kind of combative and skillful, and a beautiful footballer to watch in in that team. So I think there is a romance there. There's an aesthetic appreciation of the game played at that very, very high level by a group of exceptional athletes, you know, who are kind of mindful in the context of what's going on in Brazil too, that their performance has a political dimension to
2: it. Former England captain Sol Campbell grew up in East London but he says that it was international football rather than the hustle and bustle of the English game, where he found his inspiration.
6: Icon, I would say, you know, because being black, really the Brazilian teams, really. Because my family was so into, into the Brazilian team. So you've got like Zico and all those kind of guys. Obviously, Pelé was, was there as well. The Brazilian team, the French team as well. It was more the international I was more hooked into watching, obviously watching England, watching Brazil, watching France, watching Holland. I was really into the international game. You know, football-wise, my local club was uh, West Ham, but I grew up in the area that there was a the back-end of hooliganism, and also I caught a fool to go watch them live because I you know, didn't have any money. So um, I just stuck to kind of watching the football uh, on the screens at the World Cup. I was just so kind of fixed by these games.
2: Emmy Anura wrote the book Pitch Black, the story of black British footballers. He's adamant that the Brazil national team in particular held a special resonance for black fans and even had a direct influence on how black players in England approach the game.
10: We shouldn't underestimate the influence of the Brazilian national side as providing uh, role models for that first generation of black players who came through in the 1970s. Here we have, you know, the best team in the world playing this brilliant brand of football. And... It's a multiracial team. The best footballer in the world is, uh, is Pele. The best footballer in the world is Pele. The top scorer at the 1970 World Cup is Jairzinho. It's a multiracial side. It's, uh, it's full of great role models that young black kids can see and try and emulate.
2: Pele was the greatest player of all the Brazilians. And one player he influenced was Clyde Best, a true black football pioneer for his time at West Ham who he joined in 1968.
11: It goes back from guys like Pele and Eusebio, you know, those were two of the greatest, you know, of our time. And, um, you know, to see us following a a trail like they left for us is tremendous. I mean, I know Pele personally, and um, I'll never forget we played against each other once in New York. We came over from England to with West Ham and Pele scored two and I scored two <laughs> and he came up to me after the game he said Clyde I'm the king you're the prince
2: oh, Imagine Pele saying that to you that that's the kind of thing that sticks with you your whole life though isn't it that's incredible
11: <laughs> Yeah yeah, he was uh, as I say a good friend of mine um, mm. and playing against him it was a treat to watch him and play against him because As I say, he was the master, you know. People talk about Aldo and Messi, but I tell them, for me, Pelé would always be the king Mm. because to win World Cups like he won, you know, you had to be something special.
2: Former Arsenal, Liverpool and England midfielder Michael Thomas points to Pelé's Brazil team as being one of those at the forefront of black footballing excellence in the 1970s as he was growing up.
5: Clyde Best was the first one growing up watching them. The Brazilian national team always, and the whole family stopped to watch them. And then watching Brendan Batson. Brendan, Laurie, and Cyril. That was like blessing I was Watching them on telly, tear teams apart, it was so good for us. Because the amount of racism we sort of like took in school, and in the streets, and on the pitch when we played, it's just great to see them sort of, you know, making a pathway for everybody else to go through next.
2: Three Degrees that's the music you can hear right now they were an American three-piece soul group originally from Philadelphia who had a load of hit records in the UK from the mid-70s onwards just beautiful but for English football fans the Three Degrees meant something a whole lot different
8: that's a beautiful header from Regis for Cunningham and if he keeps his head he'll score Cunningham Letting the ball, beats Houston. And he's away again to show that pace and grace and control. Just a nicely weighted little pass for Ali Brown, who's turned inside Brian Green off. On for Regis.
3: Oh, what a goal!
2: Here's Statham. Batson. Oh, right. oh, splendid goal! The three degrees we're talking about are Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham, and Brendan Batson. One, two, three, make it Three brilliant black stars who took West Brom and English football to another level. With the iconic trio leading the way, the Midlands club finished third in the league, reached the FA Cup semi-finals, and had an impressive UEFA Cup run in the late 1970s. And Brendan, Laurie, and Cyril would inspire a whole generation of young black kids to believe that they too could make it in the beautiful game. Here's Michael Thomas on what the three degrees meant to him:
5: grace, purpose, and fight. Definitely, you know, Laurie was my man because from London, Laurie Cunningham, watching him play on the left wing it was beautiful to watch. You know, you know, it's like a ballerina where you played. Always oh, always oh, in a nightclub dancing. You know? So you know it's weird watching him, you know. So I love watching Laurie, serial, with fight, strength, attacking defenders, and the great Brendan. Brendan was just smooth, articulate, and suave as a fullback.
2: Manchester United and England, Paul Parker. They're the ones I remember. They're the ones my
9: dad will always talk about because they made such a massive massive impression on the black community for what? They were going through.
2: Paul Cannaville, the first black man to play for Chelsea.
12: From seeing those three playing football, professional football, they gave me the
2: inputs that I could do the same. And here's Kevin Campbell.
9: Growing up in Brixton, in the inner city, back then in the 70s and 80s, it was brutal. It wasn't easy. And to get anywhere as a black person, to say in goals you had to be twice as good as the next man. And whether that is actually true or not, you had to definitely be one and a half times because you were scrutinised, you were looked at differently than anybody else. And what I saw in that big Cyril Regis and Brendan and and Laurie and and those guys was an art form with a black spin on it, football with a black look. You know, that to me meant something. And it meant something in the inner cities. Whenever we play, you know, I want to be Cyril, I want to be Brendan, I want to be Laurie. So, you know, as a black kid coming up, you could relate to these guys. That was the most important thing. People in the inner cities could relate to the black players that were playing. We knew it was difficult for them. We knew they'd suffered racism, etc. But they were ours, and we loved them.
2: Giving them the name The Three Degrees might have been a bit of a publicity stunt by West Brom, but it stuck as the baggies went roaring up the charts in fans' affections. Brendan Batson had moved to the UK aged nine from Grenada in the Caribbean. A stylish fullback. Batson came through the ranks at Arsenal, becoming the Gunners' first-ever black first-team player in the early 70s, before heading to Cambridge United and leading them to the fourth division title in 1977. When Cambridge boss Ron Atkinson was offered the West Brom job, he took his skipper with him to the Hawthorns.
8: Playing my debut for West Brom against Birmingham City, easily forgettable the game for me with my performance. But the dressing rooms were slightly higher above the pitch and running down the steps from the dressing room I hit the grass and I slipped, and it's because I trod on a banana. And we went to grounds, and bananas being hurled at us was um, an everyday occurrence. Really, it was no big deal. We had to endure it, and that's what say. I think I was a bit naive in thinking that because there were three of us on a regular basis on the pitch, we would be accepted just for being players. The good thing about that part of my career was that the West Brom fans were absolutely fantastic. I um, mean, Laurie was a glorious player, Cyril was tremendous as well. So in a way, I think uh, as long as I could um, hold my own in that division, I think I was welcome in open arms with the West Run supporters. And uh, I've lived in the Midlands all my life from the time I left uh, Cambridge in 1978. After of that is because I'm, I love the people in the Midlands.
2: Sadly, two thirds of the three degrees are no longer with us. Laurie Cunningham died in a car crash in 1989 while playing in Spain, aged just 33 while Cyril Regis passed away in 2018, shortly before his 60th birthday. So we asked Brendan for the inside track on his two good friends. Cunningham was a silky, skillful winger, a man so light on his feet that it was said if he ran through snow, he'd leave no footprints. Born in North London in 1956, sport ran through his veins as the son of a former Jamaican jockey. Turned down by Arsenal as a youngster, he made his debut for Leighton Orient in 1974 and quickly became a club legend. A quiet introvert off the pitch, Cunningham was an extrovert on it. And according to Batson, Laurie's glorious, graceful playing style was heavily influenced by one of his other great loves, dance.
8: Laurie did ballet at school, I think, or you know, extracurricular activity. And he was very balletic in his movement. I saw Laurie when he was about 15. 14, 15, playing for Leighton Orient, and he reminded me of Matador. He, he was trapped on the touchline. He just he stood really still, and it'd be a flipping hulking fullback coming towards him. And one minute he's there, the next minute he's gone. He was his acceleration was terrific. He took very little steps. I think that has to do with his, with his ballet, did, with doing a bit of ballet. He was explosive as well from a standing start. He was like a, a Formula One car from a standing start. He, he was on his way, and that's why he left a lot of people in his wake. Nobody talks about the game, the five-three game against Man United. You see him; people are trying to knock him down, but he's moving, he's swaying, and he's still going. His little footsteps of his, very graceful to watch. A terrific athlete. You know, he could do stuff. I mean, he's so supple. If I tried to do some of the things he did, I think I'd have dislocated my back and everything. But he was really, really, very, very supple um, and a pleasure to watch. I was just glad I wasn't marking him. I never had to mark Laurie, and I was pleased I never had to mark him. Yeah.
2: Laurie's success at Orient was marked by a statue in his honour close to the stadium. And when he moved to the Black Country in 1977, his career went into overdrive. Cyril and Brendan joined shortly after and the Three Degrees were born. Sanjay Bandari is chair of Kick It Out. He remembers Cunningham tearing it up during his childhood in the Midlands. Lots of people these days won't have seen Laurie Cunningham play and won't know what he was
4: like with the big... The- best description I heard we like was uh, the comparison would be Alex Ferguson described Ryan Giggs when he first saw him as like watching a spaniel chasing a crisp packet in the wind over
13: a,
2: <laughs> over a park right and his feet barely touched the ground and and I think Arsene Wenger went to an event a couple of years ago where he described Thierry Henry and said he's such grace he, his feet barely touched the ground looks like he skimmed the surface
4: but that was Laurie Cunningham Laurie Cunningham was that graceful and so skillful, and in an era when there were real hard men who would really kick lumps out of you. But he was like, if, if you've never seen him play, he was like Ryan Giggs and Thierry Henry.
2: Professor Paul Gilroy was studying in Birmingham at the time and often went to watch West Brom matches. He sums up some of what Cunningham represented, both as a player and a black icon.
3: If you wanted to try to grasp what was going on in his game and what, how he carried himself on the pitch and from what we know now, off the pitch, in you know, in the clubs, as a dancer, as a, a stylish young black man in Britain at that time, you know, you probably have to think of somebody like Cristiano Ronaldo. I wouldn't use that comparison lightly, but there's something that reminds me when I, in his pomp, in his prime, there's something similar in the way these these men moved and thought about football. I can say, and this is I can say this from the heart, from my own experience of watching this happen, I can remember watching Laurie Cunningham taking a corner and thinking to myself, that is a work of art. You know, you you see these rare, these special talents, they come along, you know, seldom and he was obviously one of one of those people. And he gave me great joy as the spectator of football, to to have the, the honour and the pleasure of watching him perform.
2: Laurie's talent was so outrageous that he made history in 1979 when he became the first British player to sign for Real Madrid. Cunningham was an instant hit at the Bernabeu. He scored twice on his debut, helped his team win the Spanish double in his first season, and they retained the Copa del Rey the next year. Injuries then slowed Cunningham's ascendancy, though he still played for Man United later in his career and won the FA Cup with Wimbledon in 1988, before his untimely passing a year later while playing for Rayo Vallecano. Here's Kick It Out, Troy Townsend, one of many who idolised Laurie growing up.
7: And I always visualised that picture of him as he signed for Real Madrid, a black man in the iconic all-white kit of Real Madrid. And that image will stay with me forever because it was everything that I think that, that black dreams were made of to play for the biggest club one of the biggest clubs in the world so Laurie was just my idol I had the pleasure of not meeting him but watching him walk past me so I had a friend that used to live around the corner from Leighton Orient literally a stone's throw away and I'm at my friend's house and I turn turn my head and there's Laurie Cunningham bopping down the road as if without a care in the world, with his boots in his hand, with the style and grace that he, he, he played on the football pitch. And he was bopping down Church Road. He must have been going training. Now, the young Troy froze, just froze. My idol is walking past me. What I really should do is run up to him and hug him and, and, and glorify the fact that I've seen Laurie Cunningham in the flesh. But what I did was froze. And, you know, there were no camera phones then. And if there was, I, I would never have been able to add one anyway. But I let that moment pass me by. And and we talk about regrets. And I think that's probably one of my massive regrets is that I didn't get the opportunity. I was still young, but to introduce myself to Laurie Cunningham, my idol, my hero.
2: Paul Ince, England's first black captain, was another who was inspired.
11: Laurie Cunningham was, was, was exciting. You know, you think about get them moved to Real Madrid, the winger, the way he was, the way he used to beat people and with so much freedom. He was one of those that used to put bums on seats, used to get people off you know, off their seats and um, he was an amazing talent. And I think with Cyril Regis, he was just like he was like the godfather of black players Sylvegis to me. You know, he was big, powerful, great strength, great head of the balls, got some great goals and luckily I got to meet him a few times and i a lovely lovely man. Now he was a gentle giant. I think about him was class. And, you know, he, he was like, for me, like B man. You know, when you talk about black players. I've
12: heard people say that.
2: If Laurie Cunningham was sleek and slick, then Cyril Regis was the muscle bound battering ram who brought a new dimension of forward play to English football. Born in French Guyana, which borders Brazil and Suriname on the northern Atlantic coast of South America. Regis moved to North London with his family in the early 1960s when he was about five years old. He was working as an electrician when West Brom signed him for just five grand from non-league side Hayes in 1977. Aged only 19, he went straight into the top flight and sent shockwaves through English football as West Brom became one of the most exciting teams in the country. Here's Brendan Batson.
8: The show was so explosive. I mean, over 60 yards... He was terrific. I've seen him score goals with people hanging on his back. And he's still managing to get forward and get a toe poke in for a goal. I remember Tommy Booth at Man City trying to drag him down outside the box because he didn't want to drag him inside the box because he had a penalty. But Cyril still ploughed on, got a toe poke as Joe Corrigan came out and scored. Um, So he had immense strength, very raw when he first started off. A lot of people look back and say, oh, we preferred him when when he first arrived because he was so explosive. There was a rawness about him when he first arrived. The goal, I think, he scored against Middlesbrough. Uh, literally, turned on the halfway line and ran the whole half and scored. He was the type of player Ronnie to see if I could get him angry, he'd be uh, one of the greats because Silva was quite calm and um, every now and again you see him get, get his dander up a little bit, but he had a terrific presence. I mean, to this day, I can't believe he's not with us. It was such a shock and I still get upset about it, but on the pitch, he was immense and he used to occupy our back four as well. You know, so people were always aware of him because of his strength. And I keep using the Man United game as a bit of a barometer. But that game, he was being thwarted by Gary Bailey throughout the game. And then he scores the fifth goal, Cyril. And he's got a pose, which I think, uh, with his arms aloft. You know, I used to say Cyril is like wearing shirts two sizes too small. So that it would accentuate his muscles. He's got his, but he, he backs away from, he almost does a, four, um, a roll as he knocks the ball in. He backs away, arms aloft, big dimples, big muscles. And I think that summed up Cyril. I mean, even the Man United fans had to applaud him because he was fantastic that evening as well.
2: Andy Cole, currently the third-highest goal scorer in Premier League history, is quick with his answer on who his biggest influence was.
4: Cyril Regis, for me, is um, he was my pioneer. I always said people when it comes to Cyril, just the way he used to deal with things, the way he used to deal with people, my man was sheer class, just the way he conducted himself and that. I remember the first time I met him, I mean, I was falling over myself. and I'm not that kind of guy, you know, to know that he was Jason Roberts, his uncle. And then Jason's telling me that I was his idol growing up. Those kind of things are crazy. But for me personally, just to meet Cyril and just have the time to speak to me before he passed, you know, yeah, he's a lovely fellow, he was.
2: Brian Dean, who scored the first ever Premier League goal, was also an admirer of the powerful striker. I had a few
6: idols. I think the biggest one was um, Cyril Regis because I wanted to be a, a centre-forward. And I always used to see this guy who was... it was just physically different to everybody else at that point. You know, he was... He just looked like this superhero. He had muscles and he was quick. You know, he just looked so graceful. And he scored goals and, that, and that's kind of... I was always a centre-forward and I I kind of looked at that as somebody who I could perhaps elevate myself to be like. So he was probably him, my brother. There were others, but probably Cyril Regis and what he looked like. I realised that I had the same potential
2: attributes as him. Henry Winter is chief football writer for The Times. Like many, he was inspired by Cyril the player and the person.
4: I, I would say just generally the players who... I admired were individuals like Cyril Regis. And not simply
3: Cyril's, God rest his soul, his amazing football ability. You know, just the way he would just, the strength of mind to get past. I mean, that was in an era when he really would have been kicked. So the strength of character, the strength of mind, the strength of body, the skill that you know, the, just the belief that he knew that he'd worked on his touch and that he could crash in a shot from sort twenty-five yards. Him, and then having got to know him a little bit afterwards, just the just the sheer grace of the man.
2: Cyril would go on to play more than six hundred matches for clubs including West Brom, Aston Villa, Wolves, and Coventry, with whom he won the FA Cup in nineteen eighty-seven. He was voted the Baggies' all-time cult hero, won five England caps and was made an MBE in 2008. And the outpouring of emotions after his sudden death from a heart attack in 2018 showed the high esteem he was held in, both as a player and as a man. Join us after the break as we hear the hidden story of the footballer who steamed into the crowd way before Eric Cantona. This is Coming In From The Cold, the history of black footballers in the English men's game.
1: Hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
2: Welcome back to coming in from the cold. The three degrees brought a sea change in English football's relationship with black footballers. No longer viewed as exotic rarities who might garnish a game here and there with a few tricks. Black players were proving their talent up and down the country and becoming stars along the way. But the higher they climbed, the more of a target they became for racist fans. They had pressure heaped on them that their white teammates never had to cope with. I asked Brendan Batson about how his generation of pioneering black footballers coped with this. I
8: don't think I felt that as a weight. I just felt it was something that we had to endure. Every day, you know, football became my profession. But on, an, on a day-to-day basis, as you mentioned before, it was something that we had to live with. You know, just because you became a freshman footballer didn't change your status in the eyes of many people in, in England. You were just another black person. Um, so it was just a question of saying we're going to take all the brick backs, so we're going to get through it and I remember thinking to myself when I was um, particularly when I joined Cambridge United there were small crowds and you could hear you could see people um, with the hate in their, in their faces and I just thought well you can do what you want but I'll be here next week next month and next year and then you started to see that explosion of black players in the early 70s but it seemed to get worse I always felt that it'd be safety in numbers, but it seemed to incense those who, for no other good reason that you were black, just hated you. didn't know us, never spoken to us, We just hated the colour.
2: The post-war years had seen an influx of immigration from the Caribbean, Africa and the Indian subcontinent. These people had been encouraged to move to the UK to staff institutions like the NHS, public transport, and to help rebuild the country's shattered infrastructure. But there had been a growing backlash against their presence from some sectors of the white population. Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech in 1968 helped to give a foundation to this bubbling anger. And black footballers became a target for increasingly organised far-right activity on football terraces in the 1970s. I asked writer and football fan Emmy Anura about the political and cultural reality of the times.
10: You have to kind of put it into the context of the times. What was also going on at the time was there was a lot of kind of what i describe as very casual, overt, casual racism. So alongside the development of kind of a far-right politics. So on one hand, within popular culture, you had program, television programmes like Love Thy Neighbour and Till Death Us Do Part, which... Used overtly racist terminology in a way that was that it was never challenged. It was done for laughs or never seen as um, a particularly uh, insidious or bad thing. So that was part of the climate. The other part of the climate as well was the development of the far right. You know, we had organisations like the National Front and the British Movement. You get, you know, who were the forerunners of today's um, EDL and other far right groups you had those those organisations actually doing significantly well in parts of the country electorally. So, for example, you'd see them getting, you know, 20% of the popular vote in by-elections. Even in London in the 1970s, I think, you know, in certain parts of London, the National Front were out polling, the Liberals at the time. And so there was quite a strong far-right presence who had a strong anti-immigrant Anti-black and anti-ethnic minority status, and also coupled with that, they had uh, kind of organised gangs of of racists who would carry out racist attacks and physical attacks and you know racist attacks to properties and so on. So that was, in a sense, the climate of the time.
2: Brendan Batson says the racism black footballers experienced on the pitch was merely an extension of what black people faced on a day-to-day basis.
8: In everyday life, as a black lad growing up in England, I and all of us at that era were being subjected to racial abuse on a regular basis. It just carried on when I was on the football field. So when people asked me about what it was like to be abused on a professional football, it was nothing new. Mm. All that changed was the volume. So from um, the time I landed in England as a nine-year-old, I knew... I was
3: a minority.
2: Writer and academic Professor Paul Gilroy explains why the far right became so prevalent in and around football grounds.
3: There was a significant layer of far right organising politically in this country, and it a lot of its energy came from an absolute out-and-out racist demand that we had to get blacks out of the country. And it fits in a way with this ain't no black in the union jack kind of attitude, because it said... It not not just that you should be kept out of the country because you didn't belong here, but that once you were here, you had to get out. You know, your face didn't fit. We didn't want you here. You've been dumped on us in a kind of invasion. In an invasion. So the answer to what's the answer to invasion? You fight off the invader. I mean, I don't know how much the neo-fascists and the ultra-nationalists who 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 made who are still doing this, I suppose, today. Although they're not able to recruit around football in the same way that they were in the seventies, because in the seventies, you know, large groups of people, you know, generally poor or working class men would go to the football and um, very different these days, so many decades later, and they'd be congregated there and the fascists would come there and they would sell papers and they would recruit and they wouldn't just sell their newspapers. They would communicate their ideas. So in a way I'm, I think we could say that the the rituals around football, the spaces of football, sporting entertainment become a kind of arena, a platform for them to win support, to normalise a kind of racist mindset, a racist white supremacist mentality in the ground and outside it.
2: Oliver Holt is chief sports writer at The Mail on Sunday. He remembers going to games in his teens when overt mass racism from crowds was essentially an accepted part of the sport.
13: The scary thing about it is i don't think people saw it as a problem i don 't think most white people saw it as a problem i don't think you know I, again, I feel ashamed of it now, but i i didn't it didn't it didn't when I was a a, a young teenager so a thirteen year old it was it, that kind of abuse was kind of the norm and i didn't i didn't i 'm not saying I joined in with it but I, 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 it almost was like it was like background noise and and it was just the way it was the way things were i mean obviously i could never stand in their shoes but i suspect that the weight that they carried was a heavy heavy burden purely because they weren't getting any support i i don't imagine from from the white community from the majority white community this abuse was happening and it was as if it wasn't happening there was no dismay about it i don't think as far as i can recall it was just part of the cultural scenery and it was accepted and it was allowed, in my recollection anyway, obviously I wasn't a journalist then, in my recollection it was allowed to go unchallenged.
2: Brendan Batson remembers too how the media largely ignored the abuse he and other black players received.
8: Go back to the Man United game. That's the first time we heard a comment, I think it was Gerald Sinstead, made the comment, the abuse of the black players is disgraceful. I remember speaking, to. I won't name him, but I remember speaking to one of the commentators, saying, how come you never mention?" The abuse we get in, you can hear monkey chants. So when Gerald Sinstad came out and said it, I was so pleased, at least acknowledged, but nobody else seemed to do it. And it wasn't something, you hear it now. You, you, it's, when it comes through in the sound, I think they acknowledge it now more so. But during my time, and for many years later, it never did.
2: While the vast majority of players had no choice but to get on with things, in the ugliest of circumstances, there was a time when one black footballer had had enough. Long before Eric Cantona's notorious kung fu kick at Crystal Palace, he waded into the crowd to deliver some justice of his own on a racist supporter.
12: It was just rubbed out of the annals of history. It was it was in the paper um, when Cantona did it. There was a, an article that said, talk about Cantona, George Barry did it first. But it's not something I'm proud of, but I'm glad I stood up for, m- for my principles.
2: George Berry was a defender for Wolves, and he formed the first all-black central defensive partnership in the top flight with Bob Hazel in the late 1970s. The child of a Jamaican serviceman father and Welsh mother, George was born in Germany and grew up in Blackpool. He would become Wales's second black international after Eddie Paris in the early 1930s. Now, if you're of a certain age, you might remember that Barry sported the freshest afro in English football.
12: At the time, Shaft was on the telly and the Jackson 5 and all that sort of stuff. And they had the afros and I so I can just grow an afro. You know, I, it, 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 I didn't make, I didn't do it as a statement. I just did it because it was me. This is what I was.
2: George would go on to play nearly 500 games in his career, mostly with Wolves and then Stoke. And he now works as a director with the PFA. Looking back on the day that he attacked a fan, Berry remembers that it came at full time after he played poorly and gave away an injury-time goal as Wolves crashed out of the League Cup, a trophy they had won the season before.
12: So I wasn't in the best frame of mind at the time going off the pitch. So when I was walking off the pitch and I would just come to the tunnel and we had a group of our fans were in the paddocks. There was one geezer and he was... He had his mates round him, and he just started to, he gave me everything. You know, you're disgrace, you black this and coon that, and, you know, get, you know, get back to your own country and all that. You're a disgrace. Anyway, so I, I carried on walking up the tunnel, and something just clicked and said, you know something, I, c- I can't take that. This is actually, if you was on the street and said that to me, I, I would have, I, so why, all of a sudden, because we're in, in a football ground, you've got the right to actually say that kind of act to me. So I, I went, turned round, and I started walking back down the tunnel, back onto the pitch. All the players were coming off still, and they thought, "Yeah, we must have affected him because he's going the wrong way. <laughs> he's coming back onto the pitch, and we're supposed to going." So I came back down, I walked down the touchline, and I just confronted the lad and I uh, just said, what did you say? You know, it's just, it was his attitude and the blase anus about him. And, and was with his mates, and he was a bit cocky and all that. He says, you've really, been and all that stuff. I just said, yeah, I did hear. By that time, I just launched myself.
2: The fight was split up by police and both George and the fan were ordered to attend Walthampton Police Station the next morning where they were made to shake hands in exchange for no further action. The incident was cut out of TV highlights and essentially brushed under the carpet. While he only had one altercation with a supporter, Berry says that the racial abuse he and other black players had to suffer was the norm, both from the terraces and inside the dressing room.
12: When I was growing up, it was was a case of an accepted process. It was called banter. My argument is, is... it's all right if you think it's banter, but if I don't think it's banter, then it's not banter, because there's a problem. And I remember having this chip on the shoulder attitude. Everybody thought we oh, got a chip on the shoulder. You can't take banter; It's one of them. And I'm thinking, no, because I wouldn't. I I wouldn't stand for it. And when people said it, I just said it's not funny. My biggest was, when I got into the first team and I was actually in the first team dressing room and I became established in that dressing room, I made sure that the the players in that dressing room were respectful to any black kid that came into the dressing room. I mean, I wanted them to be... They they were naturally all right with the white kids that were coming through, but the black kids always got... I made sure that they showed respect because... Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to make sure that anyone that came after me, if I gave them a better path in that first team dressing room, and they continued it, all of a sudden, over time, you're going to get a change.
2: Here's Sol Campbell on the debt he owes to Barry's generation of footballers. Yeah, they're tough guys. I mean, mentally
6: tough, physically tough, emotionally had to be tough. You know, those guys took a lot of a lot of pain for sure. They they showed true character to get through it and put a marker in football as well. So for me, you know, all those players, and, and there's probably, there's definitely more of them as well, just taking the brunt of it, taking, you know, starting pioneers, so to speak, as, you know, it, in that kind of era, they were kind of, you know, the things they had to deal with from the crowds and from other players and, you know, even from their own teammates and as well, it, for them to, you know, turn the other cheek a number of times. And then they had to deal with it, you know, on the street, walking down the street where, where they were living and things like that. They had to deal with that as well. So it was, wasn't only just football, it was it was life. It still happens, but it happens in a different way now. But back then it was blatant, it was in your face, really in your face, you know?
2: There were some things that were shocking, even by the standards of the day, such as when Cyril Regis was sent a bullet in the post after being called up for England, with a letter promising that there would be another one aimed at him if he stepped onto the pitch for the Three Lions. Brendan Batson says his friend didn't speak much about the incident.
8: The general feeling was, these are absolute lunatics who want to do this. It's interesting, if that happened now, you'd be immediately going to the police. There was, was a general feeling that these were just people who were hiding, i say, behind a cloak of anonymity. They, they had to write a letter, now it's done on social media.
2: I asked Viv Anderson the first black man to play for the full English side, who was in the national squad at the time, how players like him dealt with those kinds of extraordinary pressures. Was there a support network amongst the black players of that time? Because you couldn't talk to your managers really about it, you possibly couldn't talk to your white teammates. Could you talk to other black players that were going through that racial abuse?
6: Remember, there's no mobile phones in (laughs) 1970-odd. So the only time you ever saw the players, the lorries, the (laughs) cyrils... Bendons, you know, was when you played against them. Mm. And then by the time you've had a drink um, and <laughs> talked about the game, time to get on the bus and go home. Yeah. So you you know you won't have a chance to talk about any sort of things. Now you go with England and I remember Cyril saying, yeah, I got a bu- I got a bullet in the post the other day uh, oh, what a bullet, what's that for? You know, blah blah blah. Uh, and, and, and and it was like that was a co- that was a conversation. It lasted about a minute. And that was it. We are on to training or what we were doing next, you know. So there wasn't any communications, w- well, when I was playing early on, especially not. It was when you played against them, we'd have a chat at the bar and they'd, they'd go back on the bus and or we'd go back
2: on the bus. Uh, and that was it, really. There was one occasion when the black professionals of the era did come together and support each other. In 1979, West Brom were looking for an idea for a testimonial for the long-serving Len Cantelo. And somebody happened on an idea. How about a Blacks versus Whites match? And so, that's what they did. Here's Brendan Batson.
8: Everybody thought it was a great idea. And we were struggling to get ten uh, a whole team of Black players at that time. When they heard about it, lads were, Black lads were just turning up. And Ron wanted to manage the Black team. He said, I'm not managing the West Brom, I'm managing the Black team. I'm not managing uh, Lenny's team. And it was great. Lads were just turning up.
2: George Berry was also part of the team that night.
12: We never, ever thought at the time that we would be were, we were making history or anything like that. We just thought, you're going to struggle to get a black team. You know what I mean? Because there wasn't many of us playing in the Football League. So all of a sudden to get the team, and it was half a novelty, but it was playing at West Brom, so we knew that if we've got worth just around the corner, it would be, be fantastic. And why not? And we knew that we were going to win. It was one of those where the West Brom fans obviously came for Len Cantello. The majority of the black, black fans around Hansworth would have been West Brom fans or Birmingham fans anyway. It was just those same fans, but split because of colour. You can never do it again, ever. In this climate now, we'd never be able to do it.
2: The Black 11 did indeed win 3-2. As well as George, Brendan, Cyril and Laurie... Other black players of the time like Garth Crooks and Bob Hazel turned out, while Remy Moses, who became West Brom's fourth black star of the era, also played. A young Professor Paul Gilroy was one of the black fans at the match.
3: At the time when it was announced there was going to be a black against whites game at the Hawthorns for Len Cantella's testimonial, it was a, quite a shocking thing and there was a lot of kind of controversy about it. But I thought to myself, actually, I, I didn't recoil from it. I must say, I just thought, well, that's going to be great. That's going to be absolutely great. I'm really excited to see this. And I went down there to Hawthorns and there were a lot of black people in the ground that, that, that day. And and I think obviously, I don't know what was going on in the dressing room, but it was clear from my, my, my position watching the game that they had to win. <laughs> and that them winning was also a, a sort of gesture. It was a gesture. Which meant something to all the people locally, not just from Hansworth, you know, but from the the larger area of the, you know, West Midlands conurbation. The people that come from Wolverhampton and other places that, where there were big black settlements from Smethwick, even, you know, the constituency of Enoch Powell. So for some, for a long time, that was the kind of ground zero of British race politics. That was the place. So, so the idea that in that arena, that that sort of process of skillful intelligent athletic activity could be performed in that way that that was a big that was a big symbol and it was a, a very memorable memorable evening for me
2: here's brendan Batson?
8: but it was a real bit of fun the ground was heaving with black people it was really fantastic i think we'd heard one or two there suggestions that people were saying it's going to be divisive it's going to be this and we never thought about that it was another game of football with a slightly different edge to it Great fun. We're in the dress rooms and always saying this is a testimonial on that but all we all went, We've gotta beat them. We gotta win. As a one thing, I think it was 3-2. I think it finished up. Very entertaining. It was a fantastic evening.
2: If anything, the now infamous Blacks versus Whites match adds to the legend of Laurie, Cyril and Brendan. A trio of young men with enormous talent who overcame the odds to succeed in a very difficult, very different time and their hero status in English football was confirmed when a statue of the Three Degrees, which took seven years to deliver, was unveiled in 2019. While Brendan has mixed emotions for the two friends he's lost, he recognises the symbolism of the monument that stands in West Brom's town centre. It's
8: very humbling to think that people think we're worthy enough to have a statue. Normally you're dead before you get a statue, but, you know, (laughs) to, to think that we'd made such an impact So he's very humbling, but very proud.
2: Despite all they faced, black players were becoming an increasing force in English football. And they were getting the recognition their talent deserved. From the three degrees to Garth Crooks moving to Spurs and Vince Hilaire smashing it at Crystal Palace. Black players were on the rise in the 1970s. With all these great players showcasing their skills in the first division, there was yet to be a black player representing England at the highest level, the senior men's team. Surely this had to happen sooner rather than later. That would all be changed by a young man who was born in Clifton, in Nottingham, under the tutelage of a man many thought should have been England manager, Brian Clough. Join us next time on Coming In From The Cold.
5: Coming
2: In From The Cold... Is an unedited production for The Wireless Group and supported by the Audio Content Fund. Hear the rest of this series on TalkSport or subscribe to Coming In From The Cold on your favourite podcast app and smart speaker.
13: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming
2: of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer.